at an ordination for a colleague. I was chatting with some of my other colleagues in our dressing area, including my then bishop. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Next slide, please. It's called a crozier. Now that's a pretty fancy one up there on, on the screen. It's the top, it's basically a fancy shepherd's staff. And it's a, our bishop in northwestern Minnesota doesn't have one, I believe, but many bishops do as a sign of their office, of their call to shepherd the people of God in a particular place. Well, I was joking with the bishop that it was too bad that he couldn't use his crozier to pull any of us out of the chancel should any of us start acting up, like in vaudeville performances in days of yore. The cross is in the way, I said. To which the bishop cracked a huge grin and said, Yes, indeed, David, the cross is in the way. The cross does get in the way, doesn't it? The cross gets in the way of our politics, our economics, our ways of life. The cross obstructs our desire for comfort, our wish for a superhuman kind of savior. It reveals the lie behind our concepts of justice. The very best efforts of the state and the church come to a, halt, a thudding halt at the cross. Whenever we get to this day, all our human works are revealed for what they are. So many thorns and thistles. Back in Genesis 2, God planted a garden. God created human beings to care for it, not as abject slaves or as total lords, but as partners. When they disobeyed, God's curse wasn't on the human, but on the ground itself. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, God told the man. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Even though God lifted the curse on the ground after the flood, the after effects still remained, and in much more than an agricultural sense. Genesis 11 gives us the first big project of human undertaking. The people of Babel decide to make a name for themselves by building a tower with its top in the heavens. But that project is revealed as so many thistles and thorns when God confuses their speech. All kinds of human projects meet with failure in the Bible. Israel and Judah's alliances with foreign powers, the empires of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the Seleucid Greeks, even the Romans are doomed to failure. Even Israel's own fledgling empire comes to nothing after the ten northern tribes split from the south. Cities are reduced to embers, ruling dynasties die out. Every human attempt to force the kingdom of God to come to earth fails, like so many thorns and thistles. The garden of human beings, as beautiful and as noble and well-intentioned as much of it may be, is destined to be swept away. But God's garden, with Christ at the center, is eternal. God's garden may not look like much to us, 
The seeds that God plants aren't ones that we might use. An insignificant family from Haran, that of Abraham. A scattered, fractious group of tribes. Warlords and kings more concerned with their own glory than the glory of God. Prophets who aren't properly trained. God uses quite a rogues gallery to be the carriers and messengers of salvation. Which culminates in God's own Son, incarnate in a man of Galilee. And this Jesus is the tree of wisdom, the tree of beauty, the tree of salvation in the garden of God. Planted amid thistles and thorns, unjust systems and brutal repression, Jesus extends his arms to all, inviting us into his garden of plenty, or paradise, as he tells that repentant criminal. The word paradise is a fascinating one. It's an old Persian loanword, which referred to a king's enclosed garden. Over time, it became synonymous with the Garden of Eden, paradise lost. But in Revelation, it makes a reappearance as the tree, as the location of the tree of life. The tree that was once barred to humans becomes accessible once more to the saints of God. The gateway to paradise is the cross, and the cross always gets in the way. The cross gets in the way because it, because it is foolish. It makes no rational sense. It undercuts theories or speculations. Even the scripture in 1 Corinthians, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, is woefully inadequate as an explanation for what happened there that Friday afternoon. Because what happened was no less than an overturning of the cosmic order. Luke tells us that the sun failed. Darkness covered the land. The evil one and all the forces he could muster, religious leaders, soldiers, a Roman governor, a tetrarch, have their hour. Even the people are reduced to passivity by this level of evil. The Son of God has been placed on a cross. And yet, for Luke, this is according to God's plan. God the Son does not save himself, as the soldiers and leaders taught, because he is saving others. He opens the gate to God's garden for others, among whom the first is a criminal. He overturns the way things were. All the glories of Rome, the failed promises of religious and civic leaders, the false hope of other would-be messiahs, our own personal salvation projects, the machinations of the evil one. They fade in the light of the Christ that emanates from the cross. The cross that gets in the way. And with all those things overturned, faded, and crumbled, we're welcomed into the paradise of God. God's garden. Amen.